Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Tesla shares are down nearly 4%, falling deeper after a report from Fox Business uh, that the U.S. SEC sent a subpoena to the carmaker regarding Elon Musk's plans to take it private and his claim to have had, quote, funding secured for the deal. Joining us now for more insight is Professor Jill Fish, business uh, law professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Uh, professor Fish, thank you so much for being with us. Let's just start with what are the legal issues as you see them that the SEC is likely investigating when it comes to Elon Musk and his tweets? Well, uh, just to start, um, the tweets have gotten a tremendous amount of attention. They've obviously had a huge effect on the stock price. And so I think it's absolutely expected that the SEC would want to probe into this and find out exactly what Elon Musk knew at the time that he made the statements, what his purpose was in making the statements, and what exactly he meant by those key words, funding secured. Based on your experience, if you were called in to offer legal counsel, what would you say to members of the Tesla board? At this point in time? Yes. Um, I guess I would want to have an understanding of the situation. It's really, I think, a very rapidly evolving situation. Uh, we, as the public, aren't sure at this point exactly what the status of the deal is, what the status of the negotiations are. Uh, we learned, I learned last night that uh, Goldman and Silver Lake were involved in this. So my first step would be to find out what's going on, um, how far along things are, and what the status of the various players are. One thing that I'm struggling to understand is how long an investigation like this would go on by the SEC and what the potential consequences are. Can you shed some light there? Well, it's very hard to predict because we really don't know what the SEC is going to find. I think the SEC's first priority is to make sure that the public, that the capital markets have accurate information. And so I think the purpose initially is to clarify the situation, to find out whether any sort of corrective disclosures are necessary, and to move very quickly on that. I think at this stage, it's much too early to try to understand, are they going to bring an enforcement action? Is there a possibility of some sort of sanctions and so forth? We just don't know. So if that's the case, and I'm trying to understand, you know, when I talk to investors in Tesla or analysts, they say, well, there is this SEC risk. How big of a risk is it if the investigation might take a very long time and might just result in sort of a hand slap of a fine? Um, I think in terms of affecting whether Tesla goes private. The SEC investigation is a limited risk. I think it could upset the apple cart, so to speak, but I don't think that the SEC investigation would prevent the company from going private. I think with respect to Elon Musk's personal situation, a lot of that is going to depend on these unknowns, on what his intent was, whether there was some sort of purpose to deal with short sellers and manipulate the market, or whether he just uh, got ahead of himself in the SEC's view. Professor Fish, 
Is it legal for the CEO of a publicly traded company who also owns nearly 20% of a company's stock to put out a specific stock price for a take-private deal unless they have a committed and or some kind of documented evidence that such a conversation or negotiation is taking place? Um, Well, you put it very bluntly. And that's kind of a hard statement, right? Um, I think there are a bunch of questions that I would ask or that the SEC would ask in terms of determining legality. But I think the way the tweet was framed in terms of his intention or his goal at a specific stock price, I don't think that's necessarily problematic. One of the things that we've seen with Elon Musk's tweets, and it goes back before this specific incident, is he's sort of pushing the envelope. He's using Twitter to communicate information more rapidly uh, in something in a, in a style that's really unconventional compared to your typical CEO. But I don't think that's something that's necessarily illegal. And frankly, I think it's something the markets may have to adjust to as information becomes more time sensitive, as we start to see greater use of social media and so forth. Professor Fish, do you think you're going to be teaching uh, your students about this particular case? Absolutely. How, in what capacity? <laughs> um, I think that, uh, number one, the way companies communicate with their investors and with the capital markets is evolving, is tremendously important, is something that um, is something that uh, students are going to have to learn about in their capacity as corporate advisors. And I think the evolving use of social media is something we want to think about really carefully. Thanks very much for being with us. Professor Jill Fish is a business law professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, talking about Elon Musk and Tesla. And, uh, of course, this all in the wake of those uh, tweets made by Elon Musk about taking the car manufacturer private. What does the United States really want from China when it comes to trade? Here to help answer that question is Robert Lawrence. He is the Albert L. Williams Professor of Trade and Investment at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. He is also a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Previously, he served as a member of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Clinton And he is the author of the forthcoming book, Blue Collar Blues, Is Trade to Blame for Rising U.S. Income Inequality? I beg your pardon. Uh, Professor Lawrence, uh, maybe you could just sort of give us a little bit of your perspective before you tell us what you believe President Trump's ultimate strategy with trade in China is. Well, I am suspicious of, um, I think basically what President Trump wants to do is to raise tariffs and increase protection in the United States. Uh, and I think he's prepared to use the trade rules when it suits him in order to accomplish this. Um, and that's why I'm suspicious that his um, urging China to change its behavior 
um, and um, uh, respect the intellectual property protection of American firms in, in China is really a negotiating demand um, or what I believe is actually a pretext for him to raise barriers on Chinese products. So this is a really compelling point because there are many people who say that President Trump's actions so far are negotiating tactics that will ultimately lead to a softer end. You're saying that's not the case. What is the end result of what you believe President Trump is going for? Well, I I believe the end result is uh, high tariffs. We're already seeing them in place against steel and aluminum with no possibilities, really, of them being removed in in the short run. And I actually think that the tariffs against China, which have been escalating, are going to be with us for a long time. Um, Another thing that really um, strikes me as inconsistent is that um, uh, when it comes to Mexico, uh, what the administration is trying to do is to negotiate a NAFTA that makes it much uh, harder to outsource to Mexico. And um, they want the agreement to expire. They don't want to give um, a, a legal protection to uh, investors in Mexico uh, and have the ability to challenge uh, things that the Mexican government does. So that's sort of consistent. They don't want outsourcing to Mexico. But when it comes to China, ostensibly what they want is for the Chinese to protect American investors by ensuring their intellectual property. And if the Chinese actually do that, it's going to become more attractive to invest in China, which isn't really what the administration wants. I think what Mr. Trump really wants is something he's promised for many years, and that is to tax products which are outsourced uh, by American firms for production in China and then brought back into the U.S. market. Professor Lawrence, can you speak a little bit about how tariffs have can, can may have a long-term effect on an industry beyond just increases in prices or blocking certain kinds of companies from uh, you know producing their products overseas? And I'm thinking of many things you've talked about, including the the chicken tax, which goes back to 1964. How do tariffs affect? businesses and how they really operate? Well, well, they, they affect them tremendously in today's uh, global economy, because increasingly products are not made in one country and sold in another, but uh, firms try to make their products in the world. They make components in one country, and then they assemble them in a second, and then they bring them in to a third. So, so many of the products that are manufactured in the United States use imported components. What tariffs do is to interfere with the entire system. And uh, today, if you were a planner in any corporation, you're going to have a huge amount of uncertainty as to whether uh, relying on the components that you bring in from other countries is going to be a viable economic strategy because it's quite possible Either the U.S. will put a tariff on your products or the foreigners will also prevent you from doing this by retaliating. So what I'm struggling to understand, the, what you're describing as President Trump's goal, is that the goal of the, of the people in the Rust Belt? Well, I think it's 
ultimately not going to help them very much because of the global nature. Uh, it, it is the goal of some uh, in some industries. So if you're in the steel industry now, you have protection from foreign competition. And so you're quite happy with what President Trump has done. If similarly in the aluminum industry, uh, or, or if you make dishwashers, you've received more protection. But if you're a steel user and you're in the Rust Belt, if you're trying to make machinery, if you, for instance, are working for Caterpillar, your firm's costs have gone up and you're much less competitive in world markets and you're going to find it tougher to compete. And I think there are more people who use steel than produce it. So at the end of the day, I, I think this is a strategy that isn't going to work for people in the Rust Belt, uh, even though it, its optics uh, may look good in the short run. Professor Robert Lawrence, thank you so much for being with us. It's always uh, wonderful to get your insights. Professor Robert Lawrence of the uh, John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, also a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, uh, joining us from Boston. There has been a lot of discussion about Tencent, which reported its first drop in profit in at least a decade. Shares were not happy. You could see a decline of more than 3.5% today following a similar decline yesterday. What happened here and what are the implications? We're going to be speaking with Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer, who joins us now uh, for, for our Crane Shares. Um, Brendan, thank you so much for being with us. What happened with Tencent? Let's just start there. Yeah, so Tencent reported uh, disappointing both revenue as well as net income, as well as a um, um, concern around some of the regulatory approval within China of some of their online games. So um, o- overall, this was a, it was a very disappointing uh, results. Uh, probably more importantly, it comes at a time where you're seeing a little bit of kind of cracks in the tech growth fang. Uh, name so so certainly ten cent um, is, is not is not helping to U.S. listed both uh, Chinese as well as U.S. listed technology companies today. Brendan, I'm looking at the performance of the Shanghai Stock Exchange Composite Index. It's down more than 17 percent so far this year. Mm-hmm. Is there any indication, based on your experience, that we're going to see any kind of turnaround? Well, I. I- think that the hope one PIM is you have MSCI's inclusion of 236 Shanghai and Shenzhen names. The second inclusion is September 1st. If you take the PE of the S&P 500 and minus it from the Shanghai PE, we're basically back to a point where we had the crisis back in the summer of 2015. If you subtract uh, price to book of S&P minus Shanghai, it's the widest ever. It's literally never Shanghai stocks have never been at this level of a discount to their U.S. equivalents ever. And yeah, well, wait, wait, wait. But how can you compare Chinese stocks to U.S. stocks? You can do it using the numbers, but you can't use it using governance issues, uh, interference from the uh, central government, corporate issues. I mean, how can you compare the two? Well, I, I think you know we just we're just looking at this mathematically. You know, what are the numbers? And sir, sure, I, I don't disagree that uh, there are 
uh, elements to investing not only in, in any emerging market or any foreign country, there, there's additional risks uh, associated with that. So certainly, you know, what we're doing um, should be part of a, an overall diversified portfolio. But we do think it's a very, on the, on the Shanghai names, very compelling valuations with the backdrop of this coming um, inclusion from MSCI, which will continue for the next several years. On, on, on the Hong Kong and U.S. names, you do have, uh, say, for a company like Alibaba, uh, they do have to adhere to U.S. GAAP. They have to have a U.S. accounting firm, adhere to U.S. listing standards, yeah. uh, which help address some of those concerns, Pim. So, Brendan, I want to talk about what happened with Tencent, why things were so disappointing for them, and sort of tie this to what we saw with Facebook when they reported earnings, yeah. which there was a sense of peak tech, or at least peak expansion of tech, right? Um, that everyone who has a smartphone is, has a smartphone, uh, who, who's, who's going to have one, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just wondering, I mean, from a contagion standpoint, is Tencent sending a really significant message that can be applied broadly throughout big tech? I, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a really great point, and, and even the comparison you make, Lisa, around uh, Tencent, because we do, you know, because of their WeChat, you know, over a billion users of this, you know, this social media platform run by Tencent. Um, but, but one interesting thing about Tencent is the, the core business at this point is still online gaming. And, and there were positives on, on the social media side, um, you know, video subscriptions, 74 million, up 121% year over year. Mobile payments, 800 million monthly users grew 40% year over year for the quarter. So, so, so as much as we kind of call Tencent and Facebook, we make that comparison, you know, it's that online gaming is, is still a big, big part of their business. And that, that's, that is the culprit in Tencent. Uh, and, I, and I don't necessarily believe that creates issues for uh, U.S. Or, or other, say, Chinese technology companies. There, even we saw a few, uh, just just very recently, NetEase, one of uh, Tencent's big competitors in online gaming, a pre- pretty weak outlook, um, a little bit of a forebearer of, of Tencent's uh, weak online gaming results today. Thanks for being with us, as always. Brendan Ahern is the Chief Investment Officer for Crane Shares, talking about Tencent earnings and the Chinese technology sector. The good news for Turkey is that some unconventional measures and intervention have staved off some of the declines uh, from the Turkish lira, and it is rising a little bit against the dollar. The bad news for European banks is some of the most exposed uh, continue to drop in equity markets. And here to talk about bank exposure to Turkey and how bad this could get is Jonathan Tice, senior banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, coming to us from London. Jonathan, what's going on here? Why do we continue to see declines? in the likes of BBVA uh, and BNP Paribas? Well, I think this is just um, a more general risk off. Clearly, BBVA, it isn't just Turkey. I mean, they own 62% of guarantee, but they're also LATAM exposed, one of the most exposed to emerging markets of all global banks. So the market's trying to assess what happens, the what-ifs, and emerging market exposure in currencies are clearly a very large risk. Jonathan, there are a couple of issues with the banks in Turkey. One is their asset base, which are their loans. You've got lots of loans that are denominated in U.S. dollars or euros, but the borrowers are trying to repay those loans 
as they are based in Turkey with lira. The second thing is the funding of the actual banks and how they can continue operating. Can you explain a little bit more about how they're dealing with these two issues? Well, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, this is one of the reasons that the ish banks, Yappy Credits, etc., have sold off more. Uh, FX lending, foreign exchange lending, traditionally when in Europe we've had a problem, we've had it in Hungary, we've had it in Poland, etc., and there have been fines, but it was to the retail base. In the SME market in Turkey, these guys have borrowed the corporates in dollars, and by extension, clearly their interest costs have gone through the roof very recently. So bad debt will spike. We're already beginning to see that in the FX loan NPL ratios that the Bank of Turkey provide every week. How are they working through it? Well, I think what they're going to have to do, um, the foreign banks will be pulling away from FX lending, and domestically, they're going to have to take up, we're under a new accounting standard now, but start to take up provisions over the next two or three quarters, which is why you've seen the big domestic banks fall quite heavily over the past two to three weeks. Do you think that there's a likelihood that one or more of some of the major Turkish banks could fail? I don't. Personally, I cannot see how that will be allowed to happen. But that said, domestic consolidation, if you look at Russia, post-sanctions, post-oil slide, etc., we have seen an awful lot of the smaller banks hoovered up. In Turkey, you've got four or five banks that make up 70-80% of the market. And yes, we've seen a changing of the guard. So spare banks sold down their dinners, sold it on um, their stake. But I don't think we're there yet. I think funding-wise, it isn't a problem. Um, But growth has gone. The domestic banks have to pay back, and we are approaching a period of pain. But that said as well, I think the measures that have been taken so far should stem, for now, the lira's fall. Uh, That said, we still need to understand what Erdogan is going to do, and will he allow them to hike rates? Jonathan, three industry groups, telecoms, retailers, and energy. The companies in those groups operating in Turkey they get most they generate most of their sales their revenue in lira recently i believe the turkish cell phone operator what is it turk telecom the phone operator they reported a loss because of what they described as unfavorable forex movements it erased their entire net income are we going to see more companies report this this way well you have to remember that that's a mismatch between costs and revenues uh, are margins being squeezed? Absolutely. But then again, for some, for example, if you're one of the big energy providers, uh, chances are your margins are going to go up. And uh, within Bloomberg Intelligence, we've got several examples, some of the analysts have written about, where this is ultimately going to be positive. So remember, on every side of this debate, it depends how you're skewed, but there will be profit beneficiaries. And as far as the bank system is concerned, capital is still okay. Funding liquidity costs will go up. Consensus needs to come down. But is this a systemic crisis for the financial system at the moment? No. Right. Is is there a good reason why Unicredit, for example, has sold off at least as much? Yes, because Yappy Credit is the weakest. The BBV has the most exposure. But um, are we calling time on the bank system now? Absolutely not. Okay, Jonathan, uh, but let's dig into the liabilities of the four banks that you really pinpointed as having the most risk. You said that foreign bank claims on Turkey totaled $223 billion in the first quarter. What do those claims consist of? Are those uh, loans made in dollars and euros to smaller and mid-sized companies? And could this uh, lead to some significant write-downs? 
Well, two things. One, the BIS data that everybody goes to um, tends to be a bit out of date and we don't have much granularity. And also, as we know, balance sheet dates can be quite a long way back in history. So we have very little idea at the moment how much has been rolled over forbearance, something that in America you guys would be very, very comfortable and aware with um, about bank systems. It's pretty difficult. Certainly, liquidity provision will be continuing at the moment for the most key uh, businesses, and SME is a very large part of Turkey. So do I think that we're already seeing MPLs for FX loans ticking up, but they're still only at 2%. Do I think we're going to see anything that tangibly as an analyst I can point to and say, here's the data point, they're all in trouble in the next six to nine months? Very unlikely. All right, we got to leave it there. Thanks very much for being with us. Jonathan Tice, Senior Banks Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, speaking about Turkish banks. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.